You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 16 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. Rich and I realized it just happened to work out that this is the 16th episode of the podcast and we're devoting this show to Abraham Lincoln, who of course was the 16th President of the United States. Yeah, quite the coincidence and kind of neat. But anyway, as we said last week, we're going to use this episode and actually the next one also, to give you guys a picture of Lincoln's life up to 1858, which is when the famous Lincoln-Douglas debates took place. And so then, after bringing Lincoln's life story up to speed with this special two-parter, after that, we'll talk about the debates. So without further ado... By writing very little about his early life, it probably wasn't Abraham Lincoln's intent to frustrate future historians but that's been the result of his reticence nonetheless. Lincoln did provide a couple of brief autobiographies for use by newspapers when he ran for president in 1860, and historians over the years have lamented the fact that, other than those terse, guarded statements, Lincoln opened up so little about his early life. In 1860, when a journalist named John Scripps asked him to provide information for a campaign biography, Abraham Lincoln said, It is a great piece of folly to attempt to make anything out of my early life. But newspapers naturally wanted to know about the background of the Republican Party's presidential candidate, so Lincoln did end up writing a couple of autobiographical sketches for use by the papers. One of those statements was published on February 11, 1860. It read, I was born February 12, 1809, in Hardin County, Kentucky. My parents were both born in Virginia, of undistinguished families, second families, perhaps I should say. My mother, who died in my tenth year, was of a family of the name of Hanks, some of whom now reside in Adams, and others in Macon counties, Illinois. My paternal grandfather, Abraham Lincoln, emigrated from Rockingham County, Virginia, to Kentucky about 1781 or two, where, a year or two later, he was killed by Indians, not in battle, but by stealth, when he was laboring to open a farm in the forest. My father, at the death of his father, was but six years of age, and he grew up literally without education. He removed from Kentucky to what is now Spencer County, Indiana, in my eighth year. We reached our new home about the time the state came into the Union. It was a wild region, with many bears and other wild animals still in the woods. There I grew up. There were some schools, so-called, but no qualification was ever required of a teacher beyond reading, writing, and ciphering to the rule of three. If a straggler supposed to understand Latin was in the neighborhood, 
he was looked upon as a wizard. There was absolutely nothing to excite ambition for education. Of course, when I came of age, I did not know much. Still, somehow, I could read, write, and cipher to the world of three, but that was all. I have not been to school since. The little advance I now have upon this store of education I have picked up from time to time under the pressure of necessity. If we fast forward to August 1864, we find Lincoln giving a speech to the 166th Ohio Infantry Regiment. The president told the listening soldiers, quote, I happen temporarily to occupy this big white house. I am a living witness that any one of your children may look to come here as my father's child has. End quote. And really, a big reason Abraham Lincoln's story has captured the imagination of generations of Americans is because we like to think that his story is America's story. In our imagination, the character of the man and of the nation were both shaped by the settling of what was then the western frontier. We look back and like to think that even as that frontier experience shaped a youthful, energetic America, so did the frontier experience shape the character and ambitions of Abraham Lincoln. And so, some 200 years after his birth, we're still fascinated by the story of this self-made, self-taught frontiersman who, by some miracle, became the 16th president of the United States. Abraham Lincoln was born on February 12, 1809, in a log cabin on the South Fork of Nolan Creek near Hodgenville, Kentucky. Abraham's early years are really the story of his father, Thomas's ongoing search for greener pastures. In 1786, when Thomas Lincoln was eight years old, his father, Abraham, was killed by Indians. Left largely to fend for himself, Thomas eventually saved enough money to buy a farm near Elizabethtown, Kentucky. He also managed to win the hand of Nancy Hanks, the daughter of a local farming family. They married in 1806 when she was 22 and he was 28. Abraham Lincoln believed his mother, Nancy Hanks, had been born out of wedlock, and today most historians tend to agree. Lincoln, who had little in common with his own father, liked to think that he'd inherited his scholarly inclinations from his unknown maternal grandfather. When Abraham was born, Thomas and Nancy were already the parents of a two-year-old daughter, Sarah. Nancy Lincoln would also give birth to another boy named Thomas in 1810 or 1811, but apparently the baby died just several days after his birth. And then we don't know very much about Abraham's older sister, Sarah. She married a man named Aaron Grigsby in 1826 and then died in childbirth two years later. So Abraham Lincoln represented the seventh generation of his family that had first migrated to Massachusetts from England in 1637. The Lincolns then moved west and south to Pennsylvania and then to Virginia, and Lincoln's grandfather, Abraham, moved west to Kentucky in 1781, and as we've already mentioned, he was killed by Indians while homesteading there. The life of Thomas Lincoln, Abraham's father, was typical of the impulse that drove men and women to settle what was then America's western frontier. Thomas Lincoln was born in Virginia, married in Kentucky, and died in Illinois. When Abraham was seven, Thomas moved his family across the Ohio River from Kentucky to southern Indiana. 
Near Little Pigeon Creek, while Thomas erected a cabin, the Lincolns would spend their first days in Indiana in a large lean-to that was enclosed by logs on three sides but open to the elements on the fourth. Not long after the family settled in Indiana, Nancy Lincoln died after drinking poisoned milk. This could happen after cows ate a plant found on the frontier called white snake root, which contained a toxin, and that toxin was then passed along in the cow's milk. In humans, what was called the milk sickness was marked by nausea, paralysis, and coma, and was often fatal. After several days of suffering from the milk sickness, nine-year-old Abraham's mother died in October 1818. With two young children to raise on the frontier, it's not surprising that Thomas Lincoln soon sought out a new wife. After returning to Kentucky for a quick courtship, Thomas married a widow named Sarah Bush Johnston in 1819. After the wedding, Sarah Bush Johnston and her three children, two girls and a boy, joined Thomas and his children on the Lincoln Farm in southern Indiana. After her arrival on that frontier farm, Sarah Bush Lincoln had a considerable impact on young Abraham's life. She was an affectionate and attentive stepmother, and significantly, she encouraged his love of learning. And Abraham returned his stepmother's affection. Although he wouldn't attend Thomas's funeral in 1851, he did take the time to go and visit Sarah Bush Lincoln right before he left Illinois to go to Washington, D.C. as president-elect in 1861. As Ronald C. White Jr. points out in his biography of Lincoln, even as Sarah Bush Lincoln became a binding force between the two step-families, an unbinding was occurring between Abraham and his father Thomas. According to White, Dennis Hanks, a cousin who lived with the Lincolns, offered contradictory reminiscences on Thomas and Abraham's relationship. On the one hand, Hanks stated, I have seen his father knock him down. But on the other hand, he recalled, the old man loved his children. Years later, Hanks said he doubted whether Abe loved his father very well. Augustus H. Chapman, son-in-law to Dennis Hanks, added his own perspective, saying, Thomas Lincoln never showed by his actions that he thought much of his son Abraham when a boy. It probably didn't help their relationship that, unlike his father, Abraham preferred reading to plowing. All told, Abraham probably had about a year of formal schooling. Lincoln would later write that he went to school by littles, meaning a little here and a little there. His part-time studies were dictated by the work to be done on the family farm and by whatever teacher happened to be in the remote area where the Lincolns lived. It seems Abraham eventually received the equivalent of a sixth-grade education in the rustic schoolhouses around Pigeon Creek. But away from the inexpert teachers and two-month school terms, Abraham Lincoln hungered to learn more. His stepmother would later say that young Abe didn't like physical labor, was diligent for knowledge, wished to know, and if pains and labor would get it, he was sure to get it. His youngest stepsister, Matilda, recalled, Abe was not energetic except in one thing. He was active and persistent in learning. Dennis Hanks remembered how Abe was hungry for books, reading everything he could lay his hands on. John Hanks, another relative who settled nearby, would recall years later, when Abe and I returned to the house from work, he would go to the cupboard, snatch a piece of cornbread, sit down, take a book, cock his legs up as high as his head, and read. Whenever Abe had a chance in the field while at work or at the house, 
He would stop and read. He kept the Bible and Aesop's fables always within easy reach and read them over and over again. Among other books Lincoln is known to have read in his youth were John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, Parson Weems' Biography of George Washington, Benjamin Franklin's Autobiography, and A Book of Lessons in Elocution, in whose pages Lincoln may have first made the acquaintance of his favorite author, William Shakespeare. Thomas Lincoln did nothing to encourage his son's intellectual hunger, and seems in fact to have discouraged it since such mental exertion had little bearing on the multitude of chores that they always needed to be done on the farm. When Abraham was 13 or 14, Thomas began to hire him out to work on neighboring farms, hired out to dig wells or harvest corn or split rails. As he grew older, Lincoln resented the fact that he had to turn his earnings over to his father. Abraham believed strongly that he should be able to keep what he'd earned by the sweat of his brow. It was during this time that young Abe grew to be quite proficient with an axe. Rail splitters were in constant demand as new land was cultivated on the frontier, and as he became more skillful with an axe, Lincoln often worked from sunup to sundown, making rails for fences. Besides splitting the rails, he was often expected to erect the fence as well. It was said that a good rail fence should be horse-high, bull-strong, and pig-tight. That is, high enough that a horse could not jump over it, strong enough that a bull couldn't ram through it, and tight enough that a pig could not press through it. In the fall of 1828, when he was 19 years old, Abraham Lincoln was hired to help Alan Gentry, the son of a local store owner, take a cargo flatboat down the Mississippi River to New Orleans. The two young men left Rockport, Indiana in late December for the 1,200-mile journey. They arrived safely in New Orleans and spent several days in the bustling southern city, which had a reputation for being a melting pot of different cultures, French, Creole, Spanish, African, and English. Unfortunately, Lincoln never left any report about his first brief stay in the city, but it must have been a transformative experience for the country boy. You especially have to wonder if his loathing of slavery stems from his experiences on his two riverboat journeys into the Deep South. In March 1830, Thomas Lincoln decided to move once again, this time to Illinois. By this time, Abraham was 21 years old and had resolved to strike out on his own, but first he helped his family move west. He drove one of the wagons on the 225-mile journey and then helped his father build a log cabin and a smokehouse and barn near the new town of Decatur. In his beautifully written account of Lincoln's life, Ronald C. White Jr. relates how, in the midst of that work helping the family relocate, an important event took place. Quote, In the summer of 1830, Lincoln made his first political speech in front of Renshaw's store on Decatur's town square. William Ewing and John F. Posey, candidates for the legislature in Macon County, had gathered a crowd by denouncing old-line Whigs as out of touch with modern issues. When the speakers finished, Lincoln stepped forward to offer a reply. Wearing tow linen pants, a hickory shirt, and a straw hat, Lincoln surprised and delighted the crowd by refuting the charges, all the time punctuating his remarks with humor. He did not aim his words at the previous speakers, but rather at the crowd. As Lincoln spoke of contemporary issues facing the small community, he was speaking of his own future in Illinois, with a new life stretching out before him. End quote.
Even by this time in his life, Lincoln realized he had ambitions far beyond the expectations of his family or his neighbors. As a young boy on the frontier, his love of learning had set him apart from his peers, but his engaging personality allowed him to be different without alienating people in the pioneer world of Indiana and Illinois. As a young man, Lincoln's ability to get along with others was helped by the fact that he discovered early on he had a great talent for storytelling. He found he could translate ideas into stories that his friends could understand. That many such stories were humorous, as well as moralistic, only added to the attention his frontier audiences gave him. While his talent for storytelling gained him attention, so did his physical appearance. When he was 11, he began to shoot up in size, topping out at 6 feet 4 inches tall when he was 17 years old. On the frontier, where a man's physical qualities were highly appreciated, one friend recalled how Abraham was a strong athletic boy, good-natured and ready to outrun, outjump, and outwrestle or outlift anybody in the neighborhood. Driven by a fierce desire to better himself and already feeling the tug of a remarkable ambition to make a lasting mark on the world, Lincoln grew increasingly estranged from his father, who he saw as unambitious and ignorant. After helping his father settle the family on the new homestead in Illinois, Abraham struck out to make his own way in life. Once he left home, Lincoln had little to do with his father. As we mentioned earlier, when Lincoln received word in 1851 that Thomas was dying, he wrote back that he couldn't spare the time from his busy law practice to come. And besides that, his wife Mary had just given birth to their son Willie, and he didn't want to leave her side. But Lincoln probably struck closer to the heart of the matter when he added that, quote, If we could meet now, it is doubtful whether it would not be more painful than pleasant. End quote. We'll allow David Herbert Donald to sum up Abraham Lincoln's relationship with his father. Donald noted, In all his published writings, and indeed even in reports of hundreds of stories and conversations, Lincoln had not one favorable word to say about his father. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. 
I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. After striking out on his own, Abraham Lincoln made a second trip hauling freight down the Mississippi River on a flatboat. Lincoln and his late mother's relative, John Hanks, along with Lincoln's stepbrother, actually built the boat with their own hands. They were hired to build the flatboat by a local merchant named Denton Offit. At the start of their journey, Lincoln and the other two young men grounded the flatboat on a dam across the Sangamon River at the New Salem Mill. After that rough start, the rest of their journey progressed uneventfully, and they eventually reached New Orleans safely. This time, Lincoln spent a month in the Crescent City, which was one of America's busiest ports and largest cities. This second, longer visit to New Orleans gave Lincoln his first extended view of slavery, and again, although he didn't leave any written record concerning his journeys into the Deep South, it's not hard to imagine that his encounters with the South's peculiar institution left their mark on him. When Lincoln returned to Illinois, he started clerking in a store in New Salem that was owned by the aforementioned Denton Offit. It was during this time that a famous, and maybe even true, incident took place when Lincoln apparently walked two or three miles to return change to a customer after he'd accidentally overcharged her. With Offit's store failing in the spring of 1832, some friends who were aware of Lincoln's interest in politics encouraged the young man to run for the state legislature. But not long after the seed of that idea was planted, Lincoln volunteered for the Illinois militia during the Black Hawk War. That frontier conflict was started when 500 braves of the Sauk tribe, led by Black Hawk, left their reservation in Iowa and crossed the Mississippi River into Illinois in May 1832. White settlers in the region panicked, and the governor called up the militia. When enlistees from New Salem and the surrounding area were organized into a regiment of volunteers, they elected Lincoln their captain, an honor which he cherished the rest of his life. Lincoln didn't take part in any actual fighting during the Black Hawk War. In fact, he later joked about his soldiering days by saying that the most ferocious foes he faced were mosquitoes. But by August 1832, the war was over as Black Hawk and his warriors were chased over the border into Wisconsin. After his brief service in the militia, Lincoln returned to New Salem, and since Offutt's store had failed, Lincoln decided he'd pursue his friend's earlier advice and try to parlay his recent local popularity into a political career. And so in the fall of 1832, he ran unsuccessfully for a seat in the Illinois state legislature. Lincoln lived in New Salem for the next five years, and during most of that time, he struggled to support himself and earn a living. With a fellow militia veteran named William Barry, Lincoln signed a promissory note for $650, and the two men bought a store and became merchants. The two partners ran what we would think of as a grocery store, and as was customary at that time, the store had a license to sell liquor in bulk, but not by the glass. Nevertheless, in later years, Lincoln the politician would struggle to defend himself against charges that he'd run a bar in New Salem, 
especially since it was true that Barry usually managed to personally drink away the struggling store's profits. Anyway, the store failed rather quickly, and Lincoln scrambled to find a new job, getting himself appointed the town's postmaster. He succeeded, but soon left that job when he landed the position of county surveyor. But then the note that he and Barry had signed to open their store came due, and since Lincoln was unable to cover his share of it, a judge ordered his personal possessions seized for auction, including his surveying tools. Fortunately for Lincoln, a kind-hearted friend bought the tools and returned them to Lincoln so he could continue to earn a living. But then matters took a turn from bad to worse when Barry unexpectedly died, and even though he was only legally bound for half the partnership's debt, Lincoln nevertheless displayed admirable integrity and vowed he'd pay it all. Fulfilling that promise was a hardship, and Lincoln ruefully joked about the financial hole he was in, calling it the national debt. While struggling with that financial burden, Lincoln again turned his attention to the pursuit of a career in politics. In 1834, as a member of the Whig Party, Lincoln campaigned by traveling around the countryside near New Salem, shaking hands and chatting with voters. This time, his campaign was successful, and he was elected to a seat in the lower house of the Illinois legislature. He traveled to the then-state capital of Vandalia, and during his first stint in the legislature, Lincoln wisely stayed in the background watching and listening and absorbing all he could about the way things worked in the rough-and-tumble world of Illinois state politics. After the session was over, Lincoln returned to New Salem and his surveying job, but his constituents liked him and he was handily re-elected in 1836. This time around, Lincoln made a name for himself by giving a rousing speech in the county seat of Springfield that impressed people with his oratorical skills. During his second term, he also became the floor leader for the Whig faction in the State House. From that position, Lincoln emerged as a leader of the Long Nine, the seven representatives and two senators of the Sangamon County delegation who were so named because they were each above average in height. Lincoln was re-elected to the legislature in 1838, 1840, and 1844. Before we get too far ahead of ourselves with Lincoln's budding career in politics, and with his eventual move to Springfield, we should probably return to New Salem and the story of his relationship with Anne Rutledge. Since this chapter in Lincoln's life is still a touchy issue among Lincoln scholars, I'm going to turn to East Carolina history professor Jerry Pokopovitz and quote from his book, Did Lincoln Own Slaves? Concerning Anne Rutledge, Pokopovitz writes, quote, The story that she was Lincoln's first love, and his only true love ever, has roiled the waters of Lincoln devotees since it was first expounded by Billy Herndon in 1866. Here's what is known for sure. Anne Rutledge was the daughter of New Salem's tavern keeper. She was engaged to another man, and Lincoln was stricken with depression when she died in 1835 at the age of 22. That's pretty much it. Her name does not appear in any of Lincoln's writings. What made her famous was Herndon's lecture, first given in Springfield on November 16, 1866, based on his interviews with old New Salem residents. Some of them recalled that Abe and Anne had been close, and since Anne's fiancé had not been heard from for several years after he left town, maybe, some said, Anne had even agreed to marry Abe instead. 
When Herndon was Lincoln's log partner, he and Mary Lincoln became rivals for Abraham's time and attention, a rivalry that outlasted Lincoln's death. For his 1866 lecture, Herndon built upon a few shreds of historical evidence to popularize the story that Anne, not Mary, was Lincoln's first and only true love. Although she is no longer remembered by the public as she was in the early 20th century, her story once again appears in most Lincoln biographies as a cloudy but real episode that had a substantial effect on Lincoln's emotional development. End quote. On the romantic front, Anne Rutledge may or may not have been Lincoln's first love, but on the political front, we can say with certainty that his first and greatest hero was Henry Clay, the great compromiser. We've already talked about Clay on previous episodes of the podcast, but just to jog your memory, Henry Clay was from the border state of Kentucky, and as a senator, he played a key role in brokering the Missouri Compromise, which kept the Union together and settled, for more than three decades, the question of slavery's expansion into the Western territories. Clay emerged as a leader of the Whig Party and as the most prominent opponent of Andrew Jackson's Democratic Party. In the 1830s and 40s, the Whig Party was built around the upwardly mobile aspirations of America's prospering middle class. Unlike the Democrats, whose base of support was built on agricultural concerns, the Whig Party's political priorities centered on commerce and industry. According to historian Alan C. Gelzo, quote, Whigs worshipped at the shrine of social mobility and self-improvement something which laid the basis of the Whigs' alliance with a multitude of evangelical Protestant churches in America. This alliance did not require Whigs to become converts. Abraham Lincoln, who drank in the religious skepticism of Tom Paine and Robert Burns with his earliest reading, never joined a church. But he also insisted that he could not be brought to support a man for office whom I knew to be an open enemy of and scoffer at religion. Transforming the self was as much a goal of the Whigs as it was of the evangelical revivalists, and their shared confidence in the possibilities of personal transformation marked the merchants and the preachers as men of seriousness and dividends, and set them off decisively from the obsession with class and racial stability and the violent defense of personal honor that characterized the Jacksonians. Every manufacturer known to me, wrote Henry Clay, is in the hands of enterprising and self-made men who have acquired whatever wealth they possess by patient and diligent labor. End quote. Since Lincoln's ambition was to practice upward social mobility and to be one of those successful self-made men who reap the rewards of their own patient and diligent labor, it's not surprising he was attracted to the Whig Party at the start of his political career. Even decades later, when he was the national leader of the Republican Party, Lincoln would still describe himself as always an old-line Henry Clay Whig. As we mentioned a few minutes ago, during his second term in the Illinois legislature, Lincoln became floor leader of the Whig faction in the State House, and he also emerged as leader of the Long Nine. During the legislature's 1837 session, Lincoln, showing a real talent for keeping his eye on the goal while successfully mastering the political art of give-and-take and deal-making, Lincoln was instrumental in pushing through the Long Nine's plan to move the state capital from Vandalia to Springfield. In that same session, Lincoln and his fellow Whigs played a key role in the passage of a very ambitious plan for internal improvements, 
under which the state borrowed $10 million to build a vast network of railroads, canals, and bridges. Unfortunately for the Whigs, the plan was derailed by a nationwide financial panic, the state was left deeply in debt, and the Whigs' internal improvements agenda was dealt a major blow. Nevertheless, Lincoln himself remained personally popular with his constituents, and as we mentioned earlier, he was re-elected to the state legislature several more times. To complement his political career, Lincoln decided he would study law and transform himself into a respected city-fied attorney, and so in the spring of 1837, the 28-year-old Lincoln moved from New Salem to Springfield. His experience in the state legislature making laws had convinced Lincoln that becoming a practitioner of law was a logical career move and suited his rationalizing intellect. While his love of books and study would help him become an attorney, his modest, down-to-earth manner would help Lincoln be a successful frontier lawyer. He was a sympathetic counselor to clients and a convincing advocate to juries. At that time, in frontier states like Illinois, most attorneys came to the bar not through law school, but by educating themselves in an apprentice system in which they read law under a mentor and helped prepare cases until such time as they were ready to hang out their own shingle. During the Black Hawk War, Lincoln met a Springfield attorney named John Todd Stewart. Stewart, by the way, was also a cousin of Lincoln's future wife. But anyway, during Lincoln's first term in the state legislature, Stewart encouraged him to start reading Blackstone's commentaries. And then, after Lincoln led the successful effort to move the Illinois state capitol to Springfield, Stewart asked Lincoln to join his law practice there. And so, in April 1837, Abraham Lincoln pulled up stakes in New Salem and moved to Springfield. And with that, I think that's a good place to start wrapping up this episode. As we said, bringing Lincoln's life up to speed with where we are on the podcast timeline is going to be a special two-parter, since there was just too much good stuff to try and cram into one episode. So we'll pick up Lincoln's story again next week. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Benjamin Thomas's biography of Lincoln, which is aptly titled Abraham Lincoln. Thomas's book came out in 1952, but many people still consider it one of the best, if not the best, one-volume biography of Lincoln. If it's not already on your bookshelf, then I highly recommend it for your consideration. As always, you can find each and every one of our book recommendations on the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. The music you hear at the start and finish of each episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, and it's used by permission of Spiritwood Music. You can find Midnight on the Water and other great songs by Spiritwood Music on iTunes and Amazon.com. All right. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next week, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.